Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hey folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Osiris. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. I think that the trust red's not working for some other reason. Oh, shoot. Because it's from the other side. Every right. once in a while, a Gibson trust rod doesn't really do what it's supposed to do. Oh, very um, interesting. And I think that's what's happening here. So what we did instead of mm -hmm. kind of tightening it or even messing with it at all, is we took some material off the tops of the frets as you get up higher uh -huh. and raise the action a little bit. And you've got a slightly lighter string on here than you wanted. Yeah, But I, that's still, fine. it still feels good, yeah. you know? So you're gonna check it out and see what you think and let us know. and. We can go from there. Moods and Modes, episode 32. This is Alex, and that is Mamie Minch, guitar repair person extraordinaire who operates a shop focusing exclusively on instrument repair that is quite discreet but greatly appreciated by local musicians and is in the lower level of a warehouse in Gowanus near Park Slope in Brooklyn, New York. Now, the shop is called Brooklyn Luthery, and to get a repair there, you must make an appointment. They specialize in vintage instruments. The quirkier, the better, but they can do repairs on all types of instruments any year and are some of the best in the business, as I can attest to. 
Also worth noting is that Brooklyn Luthery is female-owned and female-run, while proudly catering to and respecting all genders and creeds. Now, I understand there may be some dudes out there that aren't entirely comfortable with this, especially in today's culture war climate. What have they got against us? This is discrimination, man. <laughs> no, 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 no. There is no shortage of male-dominated guitar shops and instrument repair places. In fact, I can remember feeling put off by the bro attitude of some of these places, even as a dude, but especially as a young, inexperienced player. Obviously, I don't have that problem anymore, but I can only imagine what that would be like for a young female player. So why shouldn't there be a guitar repair place that anybody can go to? But if you happen to be non-male or even if you're male and just don't wish to encounter the fraternal frat boy attitude that sometimes, not always, but sometimes permeates music shops and guitar repair places, why shouldn't there be another option? where you get treated with respect. It doesn't matter what you look like, what your gender is, how long you've been playing, etc. Brooklyn Luthery is one such option. Now, I was there in the last couple months. I had repairs done on one of my heritage guitars. It's been used on my early trio recordings, was all over the world many times, had to be retired from the road for sentimental value, but I still like to play it, and it was in need of a tune-up. But more importantly, my Gibson SG Double Neck, which is a beloved instrument, but very problematic and moody. So Mamie was great about diagnosing the problem and fixing it. So a few things to explain before I play you the audio. We recorded the process of me going to pick up the guitars and her explaining what was going on with them. I also sat down with Mamie and her business partner, Chloe, and we had an extensive conversation about the shop, how those two started working together, life before Brooklyn Luthery, and more. I also had a follow-up conversation with Mamie online where we focused more on her music. She does old-timey blues, kind of inspired by the likes of Bessie Smith and Robert Johnson playing guitar and singing. And much like her guitar repair shop is greatly appreciated in the New York music Music scene. Now, we've had quite a few episodes of this podcast in which the subject is some internationally known figure, no better example than the previous pair of episodes on Les Paul. Now, most of you will undoubtedly be less familiar with the names Mamie Minch and Brooklyn Luthery, especially when compared with a household subject like Les Paul, but I'm sure you'll find plenty to enjoy here nonetheless. So just one more thing before we get further into the episode, I apologize for any lapses in quality concerning my own voice. The reason is this is my first time attempting to podcast from the road. As I speak to you right now, I am in Sofia, Bulgaria, Zdraveta, or hello, and I don't have all my usual podcasting equipment. Some of it came with me, but not all. And also each uh, hotel room is going to sound slightly different. And there may be unavoidable background noise or other distractions at times. All of which is a long way of saying that this is my first episode of Moods and Modes put together while traveling overseas internationally. And I thank you in advance for understanding any discrepancies in terms of audio quality. So now with no further ado, let's take a little field trip. Come along with me as I visit one of New York's finest guitar repair shops, Brooklyn Luthery. Hey, Mimi. How are you? Good to see you. 
How was your travel? Oh, not bad. Cool. It's okay if I record this. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, da-da-da. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for putting up with me. I got yeah, no big deal. travel. Yeah, San Francisco last week. Well, L.A. Diamond uh, last night. Oh, you did. How's your sleep? It's okay. It's yeah. Okay. The three hours thing is kind of weird. That's hard. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let me give a quick explainer as we kick things off. My double neck SG has been ready and sitting in the shop for several weeks. I have not been able to pick it up due to several trips to the West Coast. I've just gotten back from LA, a gig with Stu Ham. Before that, I was in the Bay Area shooting a video with Testament. And I'm finally picking it up. Mamie's quite understanding. And this should be obvious, but the noise you're hearing in the background is music from the stereo in the shop. Well, it was interesting. Um, in the time that we had this in the shop, two other double necks came in. Are you kidding? No. So we have this picture, this great picture of Chloe on the couch with three double necks, and they're all really different. Oh, wow. One of them is a, um, was built by um, Andy Manson. I don't know the name. This version, this was actually an acoustic guitar with a mandolin neck. Mm. Um, so we had that one, and we had a brand new... B-I-L-T, lavender, custom, bass, and guitar. Mm. Super, super good looking, like very wow. stylish. And so we have this great picture of the three of them with Chloe. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I gotta see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got it right in you my phone, it? yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, this photo is excellent. It is of Chloe, Mamie's business partner and fellow fine repairer, on a sofa with three double necks, including mine. In fact, one is a triple neck. And I have to admit, I'm a little embarrassed having not heard of Andy Manson. Andy Manson is a longtime luthier from the UK whose more recent clients include folks like Matt Bellamy of Muse and Dave Grohl. But over the years, he has built guitars for the likes of Andy Summers of The Police, Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull, and perhaps most famously, John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin. Now, most of us can probably picture the guitar that Andy Manson built for John Paul Jones. It's a double neck with a mandolin, much like this. But in that case, the mandolin is built in. This is a special guitar where the mandolin was already existing and placed inside the guitar. That's insane. So it looks like it's got a mandolin it's built got a, into it's it. Like, it's like pregnant with a mandolin. Yeah. It's like, sort of like a tumor on the side yeah, of it. Exactly. You know? Yeah, um, It's a growth. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a vestigial mandolin. <laughs> Um, and yeah. we were doing pickup systems for him, and he needed oh. something kind of specific. He wanted um, like a microphone and transducer system for each instrument, and then uh, he wanted to be able to switch between them so that okay. they'd be in two different amps, and he would, you know, you wouldn't hear one when the other one was on. So, wow. took some figuring I've out. I've never seen anything like that. Yeah. No. So, it's, and it's an actual instrument built into another instrument. It is. It's one big unwieldy object. Oh. Yeah. And how many of those are there? It's the first one I've seen in real life. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, Did he custom make that? He made it for this client. Okay. Yeah. This client is um, someone who like owns comedy clubs. Wow. So he gets a lot of these funny, you know, he has a lot of opportunities to play it here and there in the clubs. So to reiterate what we're saying, this is a really unique instrument. There are some additional Andy Manson guitars that you can see online where it does look like the mandolin is a separate piece inserted into a guitar, but nothing quite like this, where it's like an outgrowth of the guitar. I'll see if there's a way to track down a photo to share with you all at some point. All right, let's see what's going on with my beautiful yet temperamental Gibson Custom Shop Classic White Double Neck SG. So how's this thing doing? So this thing is doing well. I'll show you. 
Um, can I show you talking about with the 12 string neck? Yeah. So, so we kind of, when you brought it in, the, the action was higher. Uh -huh. I wanted to see what was going on with the truss rod. Uh -huh. And we had a look. You could see sort of... Oh, yikes. Do yeah. you know Gibson's get a headstock break a lot right there? It's because this wall, this piece of wood, between the inside of the truss rod cavity and the back is really thin. Yeah, it looks yeah. like uh, in my apartment, like where the paint peels. Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. So so what I kind of found when I took off the truss rod cover... Do you want to see? Should I just show you? Sure, you know? yeah, okay. why not? It's good. it's good for me to know what really goes on. I know! <laughs> Truss cover is coming off. Uh, truss cover is off, and you can't see the nut, uh, right? This is what it should look like. Okay. I love that we have the, um, we can do the comparison. Yeah, you can do the comparison side by side. <laughs> the two neck. Okay, I'm just going to briefly explain what the truss rod is for non-guitarists or anyone who might not know. It is not a part of the guitar you see. It is found inside the neck, a long rod or pole that is made of metal and is adjusted by opening up the cover that is found on the headstock of the guitar just below the logo. So for example, this is a Gibson guitar. It says Gibson right in between the tuning pegs on the headstock and just below is a small cover with screws. This cover gives you access to the truss rod, which can be adjusted with a special tool designed for such a purpose and usually included, at least when the guitar is sold new. Now I confess to having fairly little experience making my own truss rod adjustments, and usually when I have, it's under the auspicious eye of one of my guitar techs or a repair person, which is quite inexcusable given my years of experience as a player. Yet I suppose that being a guitar enthusiast while accepting one's mechanical limitations is a bit like owning a car. Many people love their cars, but all they're able to do mechanically is pump gas. That's a bit like being able to change your own strings. The next level would be the truss rod, which is a bit like changing your brake or transmission fluid. Of course, beyond that, you've got the spark plugs and the muffler, and on a guitar, you've got the adjustable bridge, you've got the electronics, at least on electric guitars, and you can just get deeper and deeper into the mechanics. But for me, beyond changing the strings and an occasional bridge or truss rod adjustment, I prefer to leave this to the professionals. Now, what Mamie was saying was that because we're looking at a double neck guitar, we can see a perfect example of a truss rod that is behaving well, that's the one on six strings, and one that is not behaving well. That's the 12 string neck. And she's gonna mention the nut. That's the part of the guitar in which the strings rest upon the neck. You should see the nut. There it is, yeah. Usually the truss rod is long enough that it pokes out into it's the very cavity. very clear, yeah. This nut. You don't see it. You don't see it. And it's like the truss rod wasn't working. And so there's they sell this tool that's a hmm. really great tool that you basically like add thread, you uh -huh. keep threading the unthreaded part of the rod, and then you could really tighten the nut. Uh -huh. So that person did this and cut off the end of it, but it didn't really, I think, that the truss rod's not working for some other reason. Oh, shoot. Because it's from the other side. Every right. once in a while, a Gibson truss rod doesn't really do what it's supposed to do. Oh, very um, interesting. And I think that's what's happening here. So what we did instead of kind of tightening it or even messing with it at all, is we took some material off the tops of the frets as you get up higher uh -huh. and raise the action a little bit. And you've got a slightly lighter string on here than you wanted. Yeah, But I, they still, it still feels good, yeah. you know? So you're gonna check it out and see what you think and let us know. and. We can go from there. Okay, a little bit of background on this guitar. It was gifted to me from the late Paul O'Neill. May he rest in peace. Music composer, producer, 
and best known for a project called the Trans-Siberian Orchestra that I worked with for a number of years in the 2000s and is still one of the top-grossing holiday concert tours. And there was one song in particular where everything would stop. Pink Floyd-level lighting, fire, 18 people or so on stage, and all the focus was on that guitar. This was a part of the show for several years in a row, after the first of which the guitar was given to me to take home as a token of appreciation Obviously, a mind-blowing one. Now, I don't want to throw any of the guitar techs who worked on this guitar under the bus, but it seems like somebody made an adjustment that wasn't particularly helpful. On the other hand, in fairness, it sounds like it couldn't be helped because sometimes you get these truss rods from Gibson, even the custom shop like this guitar, and it can be problematic. Is that a, an uncommon thing, or does that happen sometimes? That happens sometimes. Um, you think on 12-strings it's, it's more common? Potentially. I mean, there's a lot of stress on a 12-string neck, yeah. you know? Um, I just wish, I wish they'd called me first before they did that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would say, just save this little guitar, this headache. Um, and it's uh, from the custom shop, too. It's not like it was on the same Yeah, I mean, it's band, not like right? somebody made a mistake. It's yeah. just like every once in a while, this kind of thing happens. Um, because of the way that their truss rods work, because of the way that they're installed. Yeah. And I had these thick strings on it for a long time. It yeah. didn't help. And it's kind of silly. There you go. Because I, I don't know. I, I guess I was so used to it, but for the 12 strings, there's no reason I need thick strings at all. Right. I don't know what, but it was just like a habit. So. Right, exactly. So this was a good realization on my part. I had been on a thick string kick back when I first got this guitar, and I think most people play size 9, um, probably followed by 10. I was playing 12. I was obsessed with Wes Montgomery and Stevie Ray Vaughan and players that use extra thick strings. But there's no need to have that on a 12 string. So no doubt the years of having a set of 12s on the 12 string, while it sounds cool numerically, did not help the inherent problems of the instrument. I had asked Mamie to replace it with 10s, which I thought was a compromise, but she went ahead and put 9s, which is exactly what it needs. Besides, with the 12 string, you're playing two strings at a time, so they're already naturally thick. Should we plug you in? Sure. Okay. Now, are these the ones I... What? So, so these, are, these are thinner than They're lighter. I, no. I got you set of nines. Yeah. Just, I was more comfortable okay. with that. All right, what should I start? So it's up to you, Alex. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just here to listen. Okay. <laughs> I just forget which switch does what on this guitar. Oh, there's a lot going on. There's so much going on. <laughs> so I'm on both all right, let me elaborate on this moment and explain that good-natured laugh, which is admittedly funny at my own expense. Anytime I have not picked up this guitar in some time, I'm a little bewildered at first, and I know I'm not alone in feeling a bit overwhelmed at the controls on a Gibson Double Neck SG. So for anybody who needs a quick refresher or a first-time primer, it's a lot like the Gibson Les Paul. There are two volume knobs and two tone knobs, along with a switch that enables you to go between between the neck pickup and the bridge pickup and one middle position to give you both pickups. 
That is normal. Anybody who's used to a single neck SG or Les Paul is familiar with that setup. The reason a double neck can be so confusing is the inclusion of an additional switch that goes back and forth between the six string neck and the 12 string neck and has the option of playing either neck or both necks. So as soon as you transfer from one to the other using that additional switch, you might need to change pickup sounds using the other switch. For example, I like how the six string sounds on the neck pickup. I'm not as crazy about the neck pickup on the 12 string. So as soon as I move to the 12 string, I need to automatically go to the other switch and switch the pickup to the neck pickup. Confused? So was I. I have to say the guitar feels really nice, and that's important. A guitar with this kind of complicated configuration really needs a good setup. So what you heard so far was me playing on the six string side on the neck pickup. I then switched over to the 12 string and switched to the pickup position in the middle using a little bit of the neck and bridge positions. And that was the quote of take five. What I'm gonna to attempt to do next is play both guitars at the same time. Now I don't have anything worked out for this. So <laughs> what I try to do is play a blues in E accompanied by an open string on whatever neck I'm not playing. It's kind of funny. All right, so what I said right there was that's pretty much where it lives, talking about the double hook on my wall where the guitar resides most of the time. So right here, I acknowledge having been taught a lesson about using thinner strings on the 12-string side of the guitar. For some reason, I'd been afraid of thinner strings, and it's just fine, especially for a 12-string. We also talk about humidity, weather, and other factors. And by this point, another customer has entered the shop to speak to Chloe about a different guitar, so there is additional playing and conversation going on, and it sounds like a busy guitar shop, as it should. We wouldn't have it any other way. Okay, cool. Well, then that's your solution for that. I don't think you're going to have to, you're not really going to be hearing from this. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. I mean, because there's two. I think the neck will stay. I think 
so, you know, um, we'll keep an eye on it. And maybe that winter is a little bit more extreme for you. Uh, is there anything I can do about the winter? Well, you know, humidity is always something to think about. Yes. Okay, so I think some of that clip before the end might not have been clear, just in case. Mamie was saying that this guitar is now reaching its sweet spot where a lot of the early moving around is no longer taking place. Now, what she means by that is new guitars take time for the wood to adjust. There is this movement that decreases as the years go on. I've had this guitar for 15 years now, so it is starting to take on the qualities of an aged instrument. It's certainly helping with the feel and setup, and that's one of the reasons, incidentally, that guitars tend to go up in value as they get older. And just before that, we were talking about the challenges of winter, especially on the East Coast, and I mentioned these humidifiers that anybody can buy. It's a tiny sponge contained in a piece of plastic that you put in between the strings, and I will be using on this guitar. And just before that, I acknowledged finally seeing the light on using a thinner set of strings for the 12-string neck because a 12-string feels thicker anyway because you're playing two strings at a time. So this next clip is interesting and really captures what can happen when musicians gather in a repair shop. I happen to notice the guitar that the other customer is playing. Like myself, he clearly looks like a musician, but a different type, much shorter hair, more like a flea or Jason Mraz. The guitar he's playing is weathered and has seen a lot of action over the years, but it's still classy and very elegant, a mid-50s arch top without pickups. These guitars tend to have letters and numbers as the name, and I actually get the name wrong, but that leads us into a whole other conversation with Mamie about a completely different guitar in which she knocks us both out. Check it out. That's a nice guitar. That's, it's a, a 50s Epiphone. Um, yeah, a, I mean, the process of buying it from somebody. Oh. And I'm loving it so far. Feel free to play it for a minute if you want. Yeah, yeah. I don't have that type of guitar. Oh, really? Like a cool vintage yeah, art shop? No pickups. Yep. You know, that, that sort of mid 50s. Yep. I'm, think, I'm definitely thinking about it. Yeah. You'd sound great on one of those. Yeah, a friend of mine had one. The uh, LG. Yeah, an LG is a flat top. It's a flat top. So maybe the arch top, like maybe an L50. Oh, okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. The LG, yeah. Yeah. The LG2 and 3 are like. Um, I had an LGO for a long time. Yeah. And it was a spruce LGO, which they made for like this weird period of six months to okay. get 68 to get 69 so it projected <laughs> a little more okay. than the, the mahogany ones, but dude, at LG2 or LG3, if I just had money lying around, that's probably the first thing I'd buy. So a couple years ago, I bought an LG2 from World War II, one of the ones, the banner ones that the women built. And it's me. I really hate to interrupt, but I want to make sure you don't miss that point. The guitar she's talking about was built during World War II, a time when most men were off fighting the Axis powers. So who took over the guitar building duties at Gibson? The women. Um, and it's just, you pick it up and you just like write a song every time you pick it up. It's just gorgeous. Wow. Yeah, I really love it. It's got a mahogany top. Nice. Um, it's the best, actually. Where did you find it? Um... <laughs> 
guitar center, dude. Really? Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, Mamie is not a typical guitar center shopper, and it is an interesting story, but I am not at liberty to disclose all the details. So let's just say that her and Chloe became aware of this magical guitar that had found its way to the vintage section of one of our local guitar centers, and it was a real fixer-upper. Well, who better to fix it up than these two? So long story short, despite the fact that this World War II era guitar had seen much better days and was at that moment unplayable, Mamie and Chloe recognized its potential, took it off the hands of Guitar Center, brought it to their shop, and over a period of time, each took turns applying her own skill set and love to the instrument. The result is a truly special guitar of which music pours forth. It is representative of the shop. It normally lives in the shop. Unfortunately, it was not there that day I visited, but I look forward to playing it on my next visit. So shortly after this random guitar shop-induced chat and trying out my own newly repaired instruments, I sat down with Mamie and Chloe to discuss the shop, how they got interested in guitar repair, how they met, and more. But first, this happened. I never do this shit. Yeah. Can you guys take a I think that's all pretty clear, but just in case, the last part was, I knew you lived around here, but hadn't seen you. Before that, I'm on my lunch break, but when I go back and tell my buddy, look what just happened, he's going to flip. I've seen you play live once or twice, but my buddy's seen you many times, and in the beginning, I never do this shit, but could I get a picture of you playing this guitar? <laughs> and it's a nice moment. What can you say? I had no idea this guy knew who I was. I don't assume people know who I am. I'm still getting used to the idea. Uh, sometimes you can tell if he'd been wearing a Sepultura shirt, for example. I, I might have guessed, but not somebody who looks like Jason Mraz. <laughs> so, yeah, they're designed for right when guitar started, like guitar started to get loud. Yeah, pre Solid Body. I guess that was right around the time the Solid Body existed. Yeah, this is fifty-one. Fifty-one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the No Caster was a new thing. And this isn't as as loud as something with a bigger body. Oh yes. Okay, so just to elaborate on that, the guitar obviously needed tuning. I tuned it up, played some licks while we were talking. He told me it's from 1951. This guitar, it's an Epiphone. And just so everybody knows, an Epiphone at that time is completely different than an Epiphone today. Today you buy an Epiphone, it's basically a less expensive version of the guitars Gibson makes because it's owned by Gibson. Therefore, pre-Gibson Epiphones are much more valuable. You might have heard an earlier clip where he mentioned that he doesn't own this guitar yet. It's owned by a buddy or bandmate, but he's working towards it. Oh, one more thing. You might have heard me mention the term Fender No-Caster. That's the Telecaster before they came up with that name. It came out around the same time in the early 50s. So within a few years, most guitars would have pickups, including arch tops like this Epiphone. But the guitar that the guy in the shop has is a pre-pickup Epiphone. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. All right, have a good one, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
<laughs> oh good. <laughs> that was an unexpected bonus for that guy. Absolutely. You made him happy, Absolutely. yeah. <laughs> it's always fun to capture like communal stuff like that. Yeah. Alright, now you've gotten a taste of a day in the life at Brooklyn Luthery. Next, you'll get to know Mamie and Chloe a little bit better as I sit down with them. That's coming up right after we take a short break. And it's time for our very brief, approximately on the half hour, sort of in the middle of the episode, break as mandated by the powers of nobody. It's just something we started doing, and it feels right. Now, as far as housekeeping goes, there's just one thing to announce, but it's a big one. If you follow my socials, or heck, guitar period, you probably know what I'm getting at. Here it is. The Joe Satriani G4 Experience. Four days and nights of total guitar, nonstop workshops, concerts, jamming, and more with... Joe Satriani, Peter Frampton, Steve Lukather, Steve Morse, Alex Skolnick, Andy James, Corey Wong, Eric Gales, John Five, Matea Sasato, Neely Brosh, and many more. Whoa. All right, I'm pretty speechless. Uh, you're going to hear much more about this. So for now, what you need to know, it's January 3rd through 7th in Las Vegas, and you can go to g4experience.com for all the info. That is it for now. Let's get back to our episode. Basically, I started doing repair at Retrofront. I worked at other music stores, but not as a repair person, um, as in like guitar sales. Um, and no, this wasn't the plan all along, although it felt very natural and very right. Um, Chloe and I both worked there, and our circles kind of crossed in other ways, the music scene in New York. Um, I was the manager, I hired her. She was a baby, she was 21. Oh, yeah. We got along so well, and it was great to be, you know, two young women in this, right. you know, in this environment. Yeah, guitar um, can, at least at that time, was very male-dominated. Totally, and it was like, the vibe was more like an auto body shop, you know, it was like, <laughs> you know, a little rough. It, it was yeah. fine and fun, and we both grew up in situations where we were comfortable in that kind of thing. My dad right. was a carpenter, um, and a boat builder, and Chloe's dad's a sailor, and a plumber. So she comes from this, like, you know, okay. he also had his own business, and my dad has his own Some posters of tools and... Totally. Tools and <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but I knew how to use a chisel when I was, like, a little kid, you know? Okay. Um, so, so it kind of became clear it was time to, like, leave that place uh-huh. and do something else. Yeah. And it occurred to both of us that we really wanted to... We wanted to like make a more humane version of some of the stuff that we'd encountered in other shops, mm-hmm. and so like we're explicit. It's a like a feminist space. Yeah. We're queer friendly. We are anti-racist. These are things that are important to us, just in um, you know how we want to move around in the world. Mm-hmm. So they're important to us and how we want to do business. Um, and we got this really great space in the Can Factory, which is a, um, a factory that made t- you know those tin ceilings that you see in Brooklyn in 19th century buildings, it's like a patterned yeah. pressed tin, that was invented here in this, in this, this building. Yeah. So yeah, it's a very historic building. Yeah, it's a cool historic building. It's actually five buildings. Uh-huh. There's a mill building. The, the canal used to come up behind the building, so like a barge with a bunch of supplies would just be unloaded. There are these cool little small gauge railroad tracks outside of our door mm-hmm. that carts, you know, full of supplies would have gone back and forth on in the building. Wow. So wow. We, we really love our spot. We love where we are. Yeah, and when you came in, it was pretty new, right, that they were releasing this space You know, um, it had been squatted in the 80s and 90s, and, like, doing the music studio, Martin B.C., Martin yeah. B.C. Done, 
it's actually very cool. He recorded Herbie Hancock what? and Sonic Youth, Brian what? Eno and David Bowie okay. made some of their collaborative records here. here. He's like literally our neighbor. Yeah. What? Yeah, that's the next interview you should do. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's Martin BC. Yeah. And he Absolutely. does a lot of metal stuff. His daughter is in like a like a Norwegian metal band. <laughs> You're no, I'm not. She's Mexican American. She married a Norwegian guy, and oh, they have this like totally insane. badass band. She lives there. I have. Um, wow. Yeah, Martin B C. It's B I S I. Okay. Do you so, know the name of the band that the the daughters? What a great the, question. Is, Wait, does she have the same last name? I don't know. I don't know. She might not. But then, uh, Seizures Palace. Yeah, Seizures shares Palace. a space, and he records. That's Primarily cool. metal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we hear it. It's, it's crazy. We're the two noisy businesses over here. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. so quiet. Is that, is that distracting? No, I love it. I think, yeah. And, and then sometimes it's like totally weirdo out music, just right. walking and out of time. And it's great. It's like, it's good for your brain. Wow. So has he been there the whole time? He is the first tenant in this building. Wow. In this iteration. Like, I think oh he's been God. there for 30 years. And the wow. space, oh, there is, it's this wild sort of cavernous space with all these different levels. And the, the creek, the Gowanus Creek, runs through like a little corner of one of his spaces. There's like running water going in and out. Oh, <laughs> it's wow. it's That's weird and magical. Wow. Yeah, wow. totally. Yeah, so you see the creek outside. Yeah, you see the creek outside. Actually, on the way, when you're on your way out, I'll just take you down the hall and show you one of these neat little okay. back stairwells. But yeah, it's, um, the building's been here since the 1880s. Yeah, yeah. wow. For all my issues with you know old foods and big retail, I do think they did a pretty good job. Creek and just a little spot you can you know, watch it. And, yeah. You know the benches and stuff. Totally. Yeah. Hello, it's brief interruption time. It might not be clear what I just said, and even if it is clear, it might not be clear why I'm saying it. Here's why I'm bringing up Whole Foods, which began as a nice alternative supermarket with healthy options, evolved into a mega corporation, and is now owned by one Jeff Bezos. Whole Foods opened up a few years ago, right across the street from the building where Brooklyn Luthery is located on 3rd Street and 3rd Avenue. And I'm conceding that Whole Foods did a very nice job in terms of the design of the store, specifically the exterior and respecting the natural surroundings, at least at this location. And the, the landlord here, I think, had a lot to do with like really making a stink and making sure that they did a good job. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. yeah. I mean, it, could, it could have gone the other way. Totally. Were you, were you here before the Whole Foods came? So, you know, Retrofit is in the same neighborhood, yeah. or was in the same neighborhood, was, right. just like five or six blocks that way. So... I, I was there for seven years, maybe, and Chloe was there for like five. So we were around when all this stuff was happening. Right, but so you're both at the original Retrofit. Yeah, which the, the, the old um, ASPCA building, Yeah. which is also a really cool building. Um, yeah, and then, you know, we've been here for eight years. Um, it's been, you know, going into business for yourself, like, in some kind of ways, like, you're, you know, you're in business for yourself. I think, mm -hmm. like, the independent artist is, too. It's really right. empowering. It comes with its own headaches. Yeah and joys, and I love making my own schedule. You know, Chloe gives me time off. We've become bosses too, which has been very yes. interesting, you know. So you were both at Retrofit? Yeah, we were both at Retrofit. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I had been there before her. Right. And I was managing the shop, so I hired Chloe. You brought Chloe into Retrofit. Exactly. Then. Yeah. She was 21, baby Chloe. <laughs> yeah. I know. So, but Chloe was like a really young badass. Chloe already had all this experience building violas and violins and doing repair work and did a bunch of other building stuff with your hands, yeah. worked on boats, 
Yeah, she basically wow. came in like, what do you need? Like, <laughs> I would do that thing for you, you know? Wow. So you've always done that? Cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I went to school for marine biology, so I was kind of like on a different trajectory. But yeah, I'm from like a family of people that work. I mean, my mom's a cobbler and a seamstress, and my dad's a plumber and a beekeeper and a sailor. And so it's like just what so we do. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. In the family. Totally. It's a family business. Yeah. yeah. But. And were you doing repairs independently? Well, so I, I apprenticed with a violin maker in Vermont. Uh, he was a fantastic uh, teacher. Nice. Um, and then I moved down here. I looked for work at all the violin shops in Manhattan. And it's such a different uh, kind of pretentious scene. Mm. And. Um, a very different scene. Yeah. So I realized like immediately that that was not my place mm-hmm. so I got hired at Jalopy Theater doing repairs in their basement and then they they I think they sent me over to Retrofret yeah because you wanted more work yeah yeah totally yeah Jalopy's a sweet like um, music school have you been there no never heard of it yeah it's more like acoustic music folk music and they also used to do repair they have a restaurant next door. Um, it's a very sweet scene. They do music lessons. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So they sent you to Retrofront. Yeah. Yeah. What time period was that? <sighs> Probably the 2000s. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Let's think. So I started working there in 2006. So I think you probably got there 2008 or nine. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah, nine. Yeah, because you would have been 21. Ten. Yeah. Yeah. Good yeah. point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I've been coming to you for a long time now. Right? I know. You were one of our first, yeah. yeah. Um, it was the, definitely the 2000s. Yeah, yeah, yeah no <laughs> doubt. I know, we're always happy to help yeah. out. Yeah. So I can't even tell you the last decade. It was actually the decade before that. It's kind of <laughs> a What time. a trip. Yeah. I know. I just heard someone talking about a 12-year-old who was born in 2010. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I know, I'm still like... You know, oh, it's a new vehicle. It's from the 2000s, and yeah. it's right. just not true. It's not right. Yeah. It feels 20, 20 years old. It was definitely late 2000s, but it was it was the 2000s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And I remember, yeah, I mean, it was great going there, but it was, it was very distracting just because it's like a mu- you know, museum. Yeah. <laughs> and here you can just totally focus on the repairs. Well, we're happy to provide that for you. Yeah. Less vintage guitars to distract. <laughs> <laughs> So today I got to play a vintage <laughs> guitar. Totally. Thanks for being a good sport about that. I'm glad that was that Yeah, was I had a great time. Yeah, yeah, good, good. That was fun. Uh, actually, I think one of the last times I was in, you had, you showed me some rare guitar that was in. Oh. I, was, I don't know. If it was There's always something interesting here. I think it was, yeah, I don't, it was a type of harp guitar, but I think in that It was a Larson Brothers guitar, maybe. Okay. Um, our next client is upstairs. <laughs> oh, okay. texting you? Yeah, it's a fiddler. Oh. Do you want to let him in? I can let him in. Okay, yeah. he's just getting me straight. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think if we have anything to show you now. Would that be? Sure. Okay. Yeah, we have Cool, cool. Okay, so what happened next was we took a brief walk around the shop, and I got a glimpse of some of the other guitars that were there, including that wild double-neck mandolin acoustic mashup that was described earlier. Now, I didn't manhandle any of these instruments, mind you, them not being for sale and being OPP to cite a certain 90s hip-hop song, in this case, other people's products. However, I did get a great look, and by that time, the next client had shown up, and things started to get really noisy. So what we'll do right here is switch to my follow-up conversation with Mamie, which took place online a few days later. 
Yeah, I still have the shirt. Fabulous. Great. Love yeah, it. Yeah, it's holding up well. <laughs> That's, you know, our whole advertising theory is just make make shirts and give them to good-looking people. <laughs> like, give them to people who will wear them and get themselves seen, and that's... Okay. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> well, what am I doing with well, that? <laughs> <laughs> take a compliment, friend. <laughs> Learning how to take a compliment. Oh. It's, it's, you know, you're not born knowing how to do it. you got to work on it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, tell, tell me about the logo. I just want to cover whatever we didn't cover when I was there. Yeah. At the shop. Yeah, so that logo, um, so when we were opening the shop and we were kind of racking our brains about how we wanted things to look and how we wanted people to remember us um, and kind of what colors we wanted, um, Chloe and her boyfriend went on a nighttime bike ride and they rode over the Brooklyn Bridge and she sort of had this moment where she was approaching the bridge and she went like, wow, it's almost like a violin bridge. And so she came home and made a drawing um, and had a good friend who's a graphic designer kind of work it up into something a little bit more you know, a little bit more attractive. And uh, yeah, it was her her idea. Um, and then the, the actual design was drawn by Jesse Roadkill, who's a San Francisco-based graphic designer. Oh, Basically, okay. it helps to have talented friends. Definitely, uh, definitely. And the, the advertising policy is great. Yeah. You know, you just, yeah, you give it away, people, yeah. people wear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the idea. And we do, we like, we work with artists every couple of years to design a new shirt. Um, so that's been really fun. Uh, the last one was with um, a New Orleans-based graphic, I'm sorry, graffiti artist um, named Hugo Girl. Oh, okay. Um, and that's the one of a violin all trussed up, sort of in bondage gear, being held down. <laughs> well, it's getting ready to be worked on by these, you know, magical witch hands. Oh, I like it. Yeah. I think, think I might need to um, restock. You might need to expand your collection of Brooklyn Luthery shirts. <laughs> exactly. Big bad Maddie, not gonna change it. Yeah, that is Mamie, folks. In case it wasn't made clear earlier, she can really sing and play the blues. We're going to talk about her music and her influences right now. Okay, so we were going to um, talk about your music a bit. So tell me a little bit about it. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and my song, you know, I I write songs and play guitar and sing. Usually I'm performing with um, a drummer just in a duo right now, which is like a lean, mean machine. It's great. He, I really like him. You know, rehearsals are a breeze. Um, and it's a pretty fun interplay between just, just I'm doing the melody, I'm doing the bass, I'm doing the singing. He sings backup vocals and plays drums, you know, power duo. Mostly songs that I'm writing that are in the sort of early blues vernacular or vocabulary. Um, and so, you know, listen, I'm not the first person to have done it, but it's just kind of like, it, it's how things have it's how my journey has kind of led me. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a lot of teaching also. Um, and yeah, I'm teaching at several of these like blues camps this summer. Um, I'll be in, at Centrum in Port Townsend, Washington. I'll be at Ashokan, upstate New York. Then I'm doing one in Portland in the fall called Blues in the Gorge. Nice. Um, nice. Yeah. So that's, that's about it. I, most recently I came out with an EP in fall of 2020. So something else is in the works. Well, what should I play? What's out yeah, currently yeah. that you would want people to hear? Right. 
Okay, so check out my, my latest EP, which I can send you the files, or you can find it on Bandcamp, um, or iTunes, or whatever, um, and it's called Slow Burn. Uh-huh. And if you wanted to pick something kind of punchy, you could pick um, Big Bad Maddie, which is uh, my rewriting of an old blues song, which was Poor Black Maddie, and I, you know, so I sort of changed the protagonist around to be like this, like, you know, big personality who's, uh, who's not, like, the victim in the song. She's the protagonist in the song. So... Pretty fun. It's like a real R.L. Burnside kind of uh, groovy right hand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so when you play uh, your music live, you know, you're an instrument specialist. What do you choose to play? Yeah. Um, I. It's kind of a weird choice, but I love it so much. I have a 1937 National Duolian. Uh, It's a 14 fret, so it's not one of the more expensive ones. But I just, something about this particular guitar, you can have this sort of metallic, brash, kind of classic uh, Piedmont, you know, more like Delta Blues sound. This one in particular also can sound warm. It can be growly, it can be delicate. This this is just a really special guitar. Um, And so recently I've been miking it with like, with one of those Danish mics, those DPA, I think it's a 4099. They're great. I heard Ry Cooter liked one, liked them, so I bought one. Um, and it's 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 my new favorite thing. It just it sounds gorgeous. Sometimes my my complaint with it is that it's a little bit too clear. So I'll play with that, and I'll go through an amp. I have um like a kind of a cool transducer mic in the cone, so I can get a little growl that way. I can blend the two sounds live. Um, that's my new favorite thing. Um, I'm playing with Dean on the drums. He's a really tasty drummer, but he can push it when he needs to, and he sings like really angelic backup vocals, which is fun. Nice. It's fun to sing harmony with people. Oh, it's yeah. just like a pleasure, you know. And is it just yeah. drums? You cover the, the bass I lines. and you don't. You know, yeah, I, kinda, I do like a like a, an alternating thumb thing. and um, But, I, you know, when I do play with a bass player, I'm using this guy named Andrew Hall, who has a cool aluminum bass from the 1930s. Oh, nice. Um, so that's pretty fun. Looks great. So it's all old-time instruments. It kind of is. Um, yeah. And, you know, what I'm interested in doing is kind of, um, you know, mashing up kind of like like older, like like musical vocabulary with more modern thematic stuff. So I sing about um, whatever, feminism and female power. And, um, you know, I'm playing in an alternating finger-picking blues style, which is... Obviously, like most of the people who recorded in that style were guys, but there, there, there are a lot of heroes of my own that are women who sang in that style. I really love um, female songwriters. Um, somebody who I like a lot is Connie Converse. That might be kind of interesting for your listeners to think about. Connie Converse. I'm not aware of her. Yeah, Connie was like a, an interesting, weird songwriter whose songs are kind of architectural. They're like. These different pieces sort of fit together in this very interesting way, uh-huh. um, and she kind of she was writing before the sort of female singer songwriter sort of crush of the '60s. She was writing in the late '50s, mm. and she never really got famous. She made some kitchen recordings, and she sort of uh-huh. disappeared into thin air. She sort of like she actually she may have killed herself. No one knows. She sort of wrote a couple of goodbye notes and drove away. Oh wow! And she was a very creative person, and she wasn't romantically connected to anyone. And she sort of said like, "I want a private life. Goodbye." And she drove away, and she left behind this handful of recordings, and they're so beautiful. Um, okay, I don't know about you, but I'm already intrigued, maybe a little bit freaked out by the story. 
And uh, maybe he's not kidding. These songs captured by Connie Converse are literally kitchen recordings done in her kitchen all by herself. In fact, one of the tracks that's available online consists of her checking the microphone. I have the volume all the way up to nine, and I'm on input two, and I'm speaking within about an inch of the microphone and getting a meter reading of only about one. Okay, so she very quickly figures it out, gets a stronger mic signal, and records a series of songs. I'm going to play one of them. It's very quick, and pay special attention to the ending. Ever since we met, the world's been upside down. And if you don't stop troubling me, you'll drive me out of town. But if you go away, as trouble ought to do, where will I find another soul to tell my trouble to? My bed is made of stone, a star has burnt my eye. I'm going down to the willow tree and teach her how to cry. But if you go away, as trouble ought to do, where will I find another soul to tell my trouble to? They bid me wear my hat. Put on a nice new gown I tossed my bonnet over the roof And I guess it won't come down But if you go away As trouble ought to do Where will I find another soul To tell my trouble to? Whoa, that is quite haunting most songs end with a sense of resolution. Connie Converse finishes that tune in a way that feels completely unresolved and ends up being a perfect metaphor for her own music career and life. Sorry, who, who, who were some others uh, besides oh, Connie some Converse? Others? Yeah, um, I cover a lot of, let's see, Sister Rosetta Tharp is somebody who I love a lot. She played the same kind of guitar as I play, a 30s duolian. She oh, is that right? Was, she was playing it in the 30s, of course. Um, yeah, um, Memphis Mini is a really great. Yeah, um, there are a bunch, there's a handful of really good blues guitar players who are women. Um, at a Baker, um, yeah, a lot of people. Okay, so unfortunately, we don't have time to get into all these great players that Mamie is mentioning on this episode. However, I encourage you to do your own research, as they say. And just a quick word on Sister Rosetta Tharp. I am familiar with her work. Now, Mamie's talking about her in the 30s when she played the same type of 30s acoustic guitar. Much later, she played the Gibson SG during the brief period it was known as the Les Paul. We talked about this guitar extensively in the previous episode on Les Paul. So check that out if you haven't. And just one more thing, the way I discovered Sister Rosetta Tharp was through the French film Amelie, which has a short scene in which an old black and white clip plays on an antique television, and it shows Sister Rosetta burning on electric guitar, playing lead guitar stuff that is so ahead of its time. She's doing Angus and Hendrix way before. This is the early 60s, and I just remember being really annoyed with guitar journalism and the guitar community in general. I mean, how could so many of us grow up not knowing about her? I have a collection of guitar magazines and guitar books going back to before I was born. There's nothing about her. 
I mean, she might be listed among early blues players, but there's nothing about her being a pioneer of the electric guitar and really setting the tone for lead guitar that would follow in the 60s. Now, there has been more awareness of Sister Rosetta Tharp in recent years. For example, the guitarist Celise Henderson appeared with Lizzo on SNL and clearly paid tribute to Sister Rosetta. It was pretty awesome. And Gibson Guitars has done an artist version of Sister Rosetta's early 60s SG Les Paul. I want to get one. It also helps that so many of these early television clips of Sister Rosetta are now available on YouTube. Here is one. This is up above my head. And check out what she does in the solo the second time around, right after she says, let's do that again. Also, like I like more songwritery um, artists as well. So yeah, but Connie Converse is my kind of recent crush, my recent musical crush. Um, also, Judy Sill. Yeah, do you know Judy Sill? Judy Sill, I don't know. She her her kind of hit was Jesus was a crossmaker. Very she like she's into like Bach and fugues, and she's you can tell by her songwriting that she's got this really disparate, cool influences. And she's a very serious person, but. Um, when she was a teenager, she was like in juvie and robbed banks and stuff. She's very like an interesting character, and wrote these great songs. Wow. And she she was like in juvie and she learned to play the piano because they had a piano in the church in juvie, and um, yeah, that's how she got into music. But yeah, she was like married to a guy named Jinxie at sixteen and robbing banks, you know. And then she had this career as a as a songwriter and died young. Um, Death of despair, like a drug overdose, I think. Oh but no, she's she's like she's big. You'll like her. She'll oh, play good piano to know. And guitar. Oh, yeah. okay, very cool. Okay, obviously, I'm not saying very cool in response to hearing that Judy Sill died a tragic death of despair, but rather to express the pleasure of the discovery of a great artist of whom I was previously unaware. And what a story! I can think of rock musicians who've presented themselves as so edgy, but grew up wholesome in all-American suburbia. Meanwhile, Judy Sill was robbing banks, going to juvenile hall, getting married to an outlaw at 16. Oh, and if you're a listener not from the United States, you might be unfamiliar with the term juvie, which is short for juvenile hall, which is a reform center, kind of like a jail meets a school for troubled youth. Let's hear a little bit of the aforementioned Jesus Was a Crossmaker. Now, the original recording was done on piano, so I'm going to play you a live version, partially because it was done on guitar and partially because it's got this great intro. Um, this song I just wrote a little while ago and. Uh Somebody told me they heard it on the radio today. It just came out two days ago. And um, I wanted to write a song about this principle. The lower down you go to gain your momentum from, the higher up it'll propel you. But I couldn't think of a way to say that poetically. And uh, I happened to stumble across this real obscure theological fact. And that is that Jesus was a crossmaker. That really got me when I heard that I knew I had to write a song about it. At the same time, I was having a real unhappy romance with this guy who was a bandit and a heartbreaker. So one morning I woke up and realized that 
he's a bandit and a heartbreaker rhymes with but Jesus was a crossmaker and I knew that even that wretched bastard was not beyond redemption <laughs> it's true it's true I swear it saved me this song it was this writing this song or suicide you know and it's called Jesus was a crossmaker and I I hope you like it Sweet silver angels over the sea Please come down flying low for me One time I trusted a stranger Cause I heard his sweet song And it was gently enticing me Though there was something wrong But when I turned He was gone Blinding me his song remains reminding me he, he's a bandit and a heartbreaker oh, oh but jesus was a cross maker sweet silver angels over the sea what a sound very soft but very haunting as well much like connie converse i'm grateful to have discovered both of them and will be listening more Let's close out with one of Mamie's original tunes. This is called You Don't Lift Me Up. You don't lift me up, I mean that's all. You don't lift me up, I mean that's all. Well, it must make you feel better when you see your good friend fall. And you don't lift me up, I mean all right, Mimi. This is great. Cool. Thank you so much. Okay, Alex. My, it's my pleasure. I hope I hope it's usable. Absolutely. And I'll come see you when uh, when I'm back from tour. All right. Okay, Mimi. Talk That's soon. Okay. Have a good rest of the weekend. Sounds good. Okay, bye. And that's going to do it for this episode of Moods and Modes. I hope you've enjoyed it and maybe learned a thing or two as I have. I think it's safe to say that despite the guitar being presented as such male-dominated territory, the women have always been there, from the builders at Gibson during the World War II years to great artists like Sister Rosetta. Thankfully, it's no longer a secret. In fact, we seem to be in a new era. Guitar World just posted a story with data from Reverb.com claiming that demand for female and non-binary artist signature guitars is outstripping supply. In other words, today the guitar is for everybody, and that's a good thing. Who wants to be at a party where it's only guys anyway? <laughs> and who is more emblematic of this new, more inclusive era of guitar than our guests today, who I wish to thank? Mamie Minch and Chloe Swantner of Brooklyn Luthery. Visit them online at brooklynluthery.com or on Instagram at brooklynluthery. And if you're ever in Brooklyn and need a guitar repair, I recommend them highly. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Osiris production by Kirsten Cluthy and Matt Dwyer. Final edits and mixing by Matt Dwyer. Music that's not otherwise specified is by yours truly. In some cases, joined by Matt Zabrowski on the drums and Nathan Pack on the bass. And I want to give extra thanks to the Osiris team and all of you for uh, putting up with my travel schedule and the challenges that brings as far as scheduling and audio quality. But we're doing it. We're making it happen. 
I'm proud of this episode and the next few that are already being worked on. So thank you so much for listening. Take care. I'll see you on the next episode. Be safe. Osiris. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. It features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Hi, this is Henry K host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.